Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. The call to confession this morning is from Proverbs 25, verse 17. Seldom set foot in your neighbor's house, lest he become weary of you and hate you. Friendship is a great blessing, but maintaining friendship with one another requires communication. Phone calls, emails, texts, and visits with one another. To be in contact with friends, especially face-to-face, is a joy. Proverbs 27, 9, and 10 says, Ointment and perfume delight the heart, and the sweetness of a man's friend gives delight by hearty counsel. But as we are with all good gifts in life, we can also overindulge ourselves in friendship. Last week's proverb reminded us of the harm of overindulgence. Eat too much honey and you will vomit. In this morning's text, however, the spewing out is not done by the consumer, but by the thing being consumed, your neighbor. Burden him, with, or him or her with frequent phone calls or overstay your welcome with long and unannounced visits, and soon they will become weary of you and figuratively vomit you out. Whatever friendship you had with that person may come to a quick and possibly painful end. The question is why would anyone behave in this way? Why would someone visit their neighbor too often or excessively call to the point of wearying them? The answer is selfishness. The desire to escape work, boredom, or loneliness is elevated above the respect of other people. How easy it is to avoid the difficulties of training our children when we spend hours texting or talking on the phone. The mundane but important responsibilities of life are more easily evaded when we busy ourselves with social networking. Seldom set foot in your neighbor's house. Notice that the proverb does not say never set foot in your neighbor's house. The text is not constraining or minimizing friendship, but rather teaching us how to perfect it and maintain it. We must practice moderation even in our relationships with each other. Moderation in friendship is a demonstration of respect, selflessness, and love. It is putting others above yourself respecting your friend's privacy and time. Moderation is also being in the middle, avoiding both ditches. The, ditches on the, the ditch on the other side of this road is to not be friendly or neighborly at all, to never visit or call. Such behavior is also selfishness. Friendship is a gift, so be a good friend to others. Keep in touch with the friends and loved ones God has placed in your life. Care for them, pray for them. Spend time with them, but do so with courtesy, with respect for their time and privacy. Remember also the one and only neighbor we all have whose door is always open, who never grows weary of us no matter how often we come or how long we stay. He says to us, come to me all of you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He is the only friend and father who can fill the void in us that often drives us to our friends in the first place. He is enthroned forever as our great high priest, so let us go to him often. Go to him in prayer, go to him in his word, set foot in his throne room and be nourished. This proverb reminds us of our need for forgiveness. Therefore, if you are willing and able, please kneel with me as we confess our sins to God.
We live in a big world. Nature displays her glories every day. Every morning, the sun rises, painting the eastern skies with beautiful hues, turning the blackness of night to the light of day, bringing warmth and life to the face of the earth. Every night the sun sets, once again putting on a magnificent light show in the western skies. And the moon and the stars come out to govern the night. The seasons move from glory to glory, displaying God's power. Spring, summer, fall, winter, and then spring again. Death, then resurrection. As we leave the cold and barrenness of winter and as the spring comes on, we see new life all around us. Grass comes from the earth, leaves cover the trees, and wildlife bears its young. All this glory and life, they point us to the God of life, our God, the God who made the heavens and the earth, the world that we live in. But there is a darker side to this world. Man sinned, and wicked men turned God's glory to shame. Wicked men love worthlessness and spread lies. Therefore, our world is tumultuous. Our world is filled with violence and injustice and death. People take advantage of each other. Good and beautiful things are destroyed in this world. Innocent people suffer. Babies are murdered legally in our land. And men mock God as they serve themselves and their lusts. Obviously, our peace is disturbed. Our peace suffers because of sin, and we are left in a state of tremendous tension. So we live in a big world full of glory and life, and yet we suffer because of evil. And this is not restrained to an us versus them. It's not Christians suffer because non-Christians are evil. It's not that simple. It is true that worldview clashes and idolatry are the front lines of the gospel, but life is more complicated than just that. This tension and this war takes place within the church. It takes place within our hearts as we are called to continue to be sanctified, to continue to battle sin in our own lives, and to sacrifice ourselves to God and His service, but we fail. So then, we're left with a conundrum. We serve the God of peace, whose Son is the Prince of Peace, and He lives in us by the Spirit of Peace. How then are we to find peace? And the answer is found in the scriptures. Our text today is Psalm 4. And Psalm 4 is an evening prayer. And one of the glories of God and His love for, for men that He displays to us in creation and in His cycles of renewal, morning and evening, week unto week, month to month, 
season to season and year to year. God gives us these cycles for death and resurrection, for purification, for life. In our text today, God invites us to close every night with his peace. This psalm, Psalm 4, is an evening prayer for peace. Verse 4 says, Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. And, so, and the psalm closes in verse 8, I will both lie down in peace and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So we know that this peace is possible. The conundrum has an answer. Because God built his peace into creation, and we're called to participate in it and to live in it. But this psalm then teaches us how we are to do that. And the psalm's structured uh, chiastically, and for the visitors who are out there, chi chiasms are literary structures where the beginning and the end respond to each other. So if you look in your bulletins, you can see how verse 1 and verse 8 correspond thematically. And 2 and 3 correspond to 6 and 7, and verses 4 and 5 correspond to each other. So verse 1 opens the prayer. And then in verses 2 and 3, the next movement, there's a contrast between the wickedness of men and the holiness of God and his chosen ones. At the center of the chiasm, verses 4 and 5, we're given six commands, which if we will obey them, we will know God's peace. So God, you want peace in this broken world? Do these things. That's the heart of the, the, the chiasm. And then it moves back to verses 6 and 7, the second stage of the chiasm. Uh, and we see again the contrast. And the contrast is between the attitude of despair versus the gratitude and the joy of the believer. And verse 8 closes the prayer with a declaration of peace and faith. So I'm going to read through the psalm as I go through the application portion of this message. And now we come to that. The first step for finding peace is that we must pray. That's the first step. Verse 1, Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. That's how our psalm opens. Hear my prayer. Now this call to prayer might come across as a simplistic command. Just pray. But it's not. It's not so simple. The peace we need is not available from inside of us. We, we can't just meditate and have peace. The peace must come from God. And this is in direct contradiction to the prevailing notions of our world. The world teaches and believes that man is basically good. And that we simply need to try harder, to focus, or to meditate our way to peace. Self-contemplation. Self Go out in the woods and think about it. and you'll, you'll find peace. That's what the psychiatrists, the psychologists, and the counselors uh, think. And they found their systems on these beliefs. But they're wrong. Popular and secular notions of what is good and what constitutes peace are worldly. They're not God's answer to peace. So their answers are worldly. You'll hear that what we need are more laws, we need more money, and we need more democracy. Man's, man's got man's answers. But what we really need and what the Bible teaches us 
is that we need to pray. We should be teaching this to our children, just like they teach fire drills in school. I don't know if it's the same today, but when I was a kid in school, the instructions for if you got if you got caught if you caught fire, the instructions were this: stop, drop, and roll. Any of you remember that? Stop, drop, and roll. If you catch on fire, that's what you do. In an emergency, our tendency is to panic, to get frantic, and that's dangerous. And it makes things worse. So if your clothing catches on fire, the first thing you do is stop so that you don't run into stuff and hurt yourself or others. The next thing you do is you drop to the floor and you roll to smother the fire out. So if you catch on fire, that's what you do. Similarly, when we find ourselves lacking peace, getting frantic, getting emotional, getting all worked up, when our souls are on fire, the first thing we need to do is stop. Stop. Stop banging your head against the wall. You've been going at it so good, you're hurting yourself so good. You, you stop doing that. Stop muddying everything by trying to fix it without God. God knows the answer. You don't. You need to pray. Stop. Stop blowing everything out of proportion. Just stop. Quiet your soul. Look to God. Then we need to drop. Drop to your knees. Drop to your faces. Figuratively, at least, if not literally. And this signifies our humility. Our dependence upon the God of heaven and earth. And our need for his mercy. Verse 1 says, have mercy on me and hear my prayer. That humility is absolutely necessary for us to pray. So stop, hit your knees, and then we need to pray. Stop, drop, and pray. So is your soul on fire? Are you losing your peace? Stop, drop, and pray. And the next step to finding peace is clarity. Once you're on your knees, once you're on your knees in prayer, you need to identify things clearly. Take note of what is happening in the world and don't lie about it. Because the actions of men, including our own actions, are manifest in the world and in our lives. So the psalmist, David, who wrote this psalm, David cries out, verse 2, How long, O you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? Selah. So David here gives us clarity. He says, he gives us three things that the sons of men are prone to do. First, embrace shame. Turn my, my shame into glory. Second, to love vanity. How long will you love worthlessness? And third, to believe lies. So will you, how, how long, O oh you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? Embrace shame, love vanity, and believe lies. Now, how does this uh, relate to clarity? Embracing, I mean, sorry, turning glory to shame has to do with sin and wickedness. Sin and wickedness. This is when men decide to follow their, the desires of their own hearts instead of submitting to what God says, what God's laws say. So it's things like adultery, 
and murder and theft. They all fit in this category, turning glory to shame, along with all of their many derivatives. So the lighter sins that are related to murder and adultery and theft. So in prayer, we are called to name the injustices and the wickednesses that we see in our world. We're called to name them and to, to, to identify them rightly, to, to see them for what they are. It's no good to just sweep them under the car carpet. It's no good to turn a blind eye. Those are things that the world will tell you that to do. They'll say, oh, this isn't really bad. That's just a choice. Or just forget about it. Let it fester. God tells us to identify it and name it. Recognize it for what it is. David's lament means that we need to call sin what it is. Because shame is shameful, not glorious. So we, we may not turn glory to shame. Loving worthlessness has to do with wicked value systems. When men devote their time, their money, and their lives in the pursuit of wealth, or sports, or entertainment, or pleasure, instead of the pursuit of righteousness and serving God. This is a form of idolatry. It's, it's loving not God. It's idolatry. And it's not loving things of true value that God tells us that we're commanded to love, which is himself and our neighbor. Seeking falsehood has to do with willing blindness, with hardness of heart, and lying. And so this is when men embrace false worldviews. When they convince themselves of their own inherent goodness. Well, I'm, I'm a good guy. I'm not that bad. And we're good. We're, our hearts are so good at this. We're so good at making comparisons against the other guy. Somebody who, look how bad that person is. I'm not that bad. Think of the Pharisee and the prayers. We're, our hearts are so good at this. When we embrace this false gospel of our own goodness. When we convince ourselves of our own wisdom, we just think we know better than God. Or when men say in their heart that there is no God, which runs rampant in our society. These are worldview sins. It's lies. It's buying into lies. And these sins, because they are worldview sins, they perpetuate sin. They inculcate sin. They institutionalize wickedness. If you define goodness contrary to how the Bible defines it, you're going to build your systems on that basis, and you're going to perpetuate wickedness. So, how long, O oh you sons of men, are you going to do this? <laughs> to sin, to, to commit idolatry, and to, to believe lies. Now, every one of these three sins or three particular categories that David lists for us has uh, their own manifestations to varying degrees in the lives of believers as well. It's really easy to, to, to point out, well, that guy's a murderer. That guy's an adulterer. You know, that guy believes that we, you know, that God is a monkey. 
or that time is the god, because time is what changes us from protoplasm to people. It's easy for us to point at that, but we're not sanctified yet, which means that there's lesser forms of these that we all participate in, that we are all guilty of. So we're not guilty of adultery, murder, or grand theft, but what about lust? What about envy? What about anger? What about harsh words? Or laziness? Or not thinking well of our neighbor? Not, not loving, loving your neighbor hopes all things. Do we, do we do that? Do we do that for our brethren? We might not be outwardly showy or driven by the all, almighty dollar, or obviously so. But have we put off every hindrance that we might win the race, as Paul suggests? Is Jesus Lord of every dollar? Or is Jesus just Lord of Sunday and whatever money we give to the church? And the rest is mine to do whatever I want with. We might not buy into or perpetuate the lies of secular science, the philosophies of the world, or deny God outright... But how much are we willing to stand against those things? How much are we willing to capitulate to those things in the world? And just say, oh, well, I'm not going to say anything. That would be awkward. That would be uncomfortable. And we allow the injustice to be perpetuated. David's lament is a reminder that we need to not turn a blind eye to sin. We need to see it for what it is confess it, our own, and our society's, our culture's sin, like Daniel does for the Israelites, and we need to cry out to God regarding it. Now this query is given to us in contrast with a confession of God's sovereignty and his favor. So David knows these things are all bad, and he's, he's naming them. He says, this, this is bad. How long are you going to do this wickedness, O sons of men? But know, verse 3, but know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call to him. So even in the midst of identifying sin and confessing it, we must not despair. We must believe what God teaches us in his word. God teaches us that he is good and that he is in control and he will save his, his blessed ones, his chosen ones, those whom he has mercy upon. So believe. God hears, and that implies that God saves. Now after this clarity, this is the second step toward peace, the next step to peace is obedience, as evidenced in the commands given in verses 4 and 5. So verse 4 starts with this, Be angry and do not sin. This is, the, this is your uh, action items, alright? This is your list, this is what you need to do. Be angry and do not sin. Now, the word translated angry here is accurate, but it's more limited in English than it, than, uh, it is in the Hebrew. It, it, it's also translated in other uh, translations as be disturbed or, to be, or tremble. Be disturbed. I like that. Be disturbed. That's okay. Be disturbed and do not sin. This is something that is really important for us to wrap our heads around. There's nothing wrong with emotion in itself. 
per se. There's nothing wrong with emotion. God, emotion is a gift that God gives to us. So are you happy? That's an emotion. Praise God. Are you sad? That's an emotion. Praise God. And we see constant examples of the, the psalmists praising God in the midst of sadness or in despair or in suffering or in agony. They praise God. Job praises God in the midst of great, terrible suffering. We're always called to praise God. But feeling emotion in itself is not sin. There's nothing wrong with anger, anguish, emotion, or being disturbed. We can feel these emotions in holiness. In holiness, purity, we can feel these. In fact, this commands us that if we feel emotions, that's the way we must do it. So be disturbed and do not sin. Now, we do, we, we do sometimes associate these feelings with wrong. But we need to learn clarity on this. We need to see rightly. It's okay to emote because sin and its consequences rightly result in emotions. The, the, the pain of loss, the, 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 the compassion and, and the, the, the feeling of hurt that Jesus says, weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Paul says that. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Get involved in people's lives. Care about them. Sin rightly results in disturbance. If we are not disturbed by sin, then it's a problem. That means our hearts are, hearts are hard. So embrace your emotions that arise from clearly perceiving wickedness in the world. When you sit back and you see those babies being killed down the street in Planned Parenthood, and it makes you cry, that's okay. That's something that we should cry about. But at the same time, we need this clarification, the do not sin part of it. Because it's so easy for our fallen hearts to justify a sinful reaction to sin. So we need to learn that two wrongs don't make a right. Yes, that's trite. Yes, it's a cliche. But it's true. Two wrongs don't make a right. We see sin. We identify sin. We confess our own sin. We've Okay, there. We now have identified sin. Responding to sin with sin is bad. Don't do it. Do not sin. Confess your sin and turn from it. David wisely anticipates our tendency to use that sin as a justification for further sin. So he includes, do not sin. Now fortunately, he tells us the very next thing, how not to sin in our emotions. Verse 4b, meditate within your heart on your bed and be still, Selah. So if you feel all these strong emotions about the sin and the consequence of it is, that you see in the world, what do you do with it? Well, the answer is, be quiet. Be quiet. This verse embraces the preceding confession that, that David just made. Man's vengeance does not accomplish God's goals. 
God, multiple places in the scripture says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. So we need to meditate on, in our beds, in our hearts, on what is true and what is right. Remind ourselves of the confession that we just made. Agonize over the pain and the suffering that sin causes in, in the world. And then quiet our spirit and trust God. Because God is Lord and He hears when we call. And because of this, we can trust Him in our meditation. We can silence our souls and quiet our spirits and hand over all of that frustration and disturbance to God. Cast all your cares upon me. That's what Jesus says. He can bear your burdens. He paid the penalty for every sin in the world. He's, the, the, the penalty that he paid on the cross is capable of covering every sin in the world. He, he perfectly and righteously atoned for sin. And in him you can trust that all wrongs that are committed in the world, all the things that make you cry and burn and hurt, can be given over to Jesus. And he will establish justice and righteousness. If not in this life, then in the next. But ultimately God is true, God is right, he is just, and he is holy, and he will cause his glory to go forth, and his glory then proceeds in life. Sacrifice yourself to God. Give yourself up to Him. Give those emotions to God. Meditate on your bed and be quiet. And then, worship. Worship in righteousness. Verse 5, offer the sacrifices of righteousness. Instead of being angry and sinning, instead of being disturbed and sinning, He says, be disturbed and do not sin. Instead, go out and give. Give to God what He asks of you. The sacrifices of righteousness. And then believe. The rest of verse 5. And put your trust in the Lord. Notice the passive nature of this command. Disobedience is passive. And put your trust in the Lord. That's something you're commanded to do. What he's saying is, let go. Don't hold on. You, you've, you've confessed it to God. You've, you've, you've given it to God. You've worshipped Him in holiness. Now let it go. The world is bigger than you, and God has you in His hands. You serve Him at His pleasure. You know that you are right with Him. Trust Him. Trust that. Rest in Him. Believe the Gospel. So we've stopped, we've dropped, and we've prayed. We've clearly identified sin. We've confessed God's sovereignty. And we've submitted our wills to God's will. We've, we're doing the things that He's commanded us to obey. The next step to peace is to guard our attitudes. Which first means we must identify our attitudes. Recognize complaining. Recognize grumbling. God's people, all through their history, constantly are given these blessings of life and deliverance, and they constantly are grumbling and complaining about it. And God judges them for that sin of complaining. 
Recognize complaining. Recognize despair. And then turn it into prayer. Verse 6. There are many who say, Who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. This verse draws our attention to something that's very true. There are many who give lip service to God. Many people who will affirm biblical truth, but then deny it with their attitudes. They'll say, yeah, I'm a sinner. I confess it. Yeah, Jesus is King. Jesus is Lord. And they'll walk out like a puddle blow. They, they have a defeatist perspective, and it belies a lack of trust. They're just commanded to trust, and now they go out and say, who's going to show us any good? What, what, what's the point of it all? What's the point? Uh, for By means of, of example, a parent can discipline their child for some infraction. They, okay, they set a rule, the rule was clear, the child knew the rule, the child broke the rule. So the parent disciplines the child, and the child then can say, I'm sorry. They can stop doing what they were disciplined for. And they can do what they're supposed to do, and do it all in a bad attitude, and with sour grapes. Just, just that, that frown on their face, just kind of a chip on their shoulder. And in attitude, this is disobedience. Now they're obeying the letter of the law, they're not obeying the spirit of the law. And that attitude, if not checked, will lead to greater sin. It will lead to discontent. It will lead then to bitterness and anger and frustration, which will eventually end up, what's in the heart comes out. It eventually comes out. So parents, you must practice due diligence and discipline. Due diligence and discipline means shepherding the hearts of your children, looking at their hearts, not just their shells, not just their outward actions. You need to look at your children for who they are. You need to be, uh, if you have, you'll know that you have success when, when their attitude reflects the godliness that you expect from them. When from their heart they want to do the right thing because they see it as the right thing and they love Jesus and they love God. So they're willing to do the right thing. And then we have the answer, what is that right thing? Declare praise and gratitude. Verse 7. You have put gladness in my heart, more than in the season that their grain and wine increased. So here you have that contrast. You have this complaining versus praise. God's will and purpose and desire for his people is joyful praise and service. It's a willing heart and a rich, blessed life. And the final step towards God's peace is confession and receiving of peace. Verse 8. I will both lie down in peace and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. That's a confession. I, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to believe these things. I will believe. I will lie down in peace and sleep. I'll trust God. I'm going to sleep and I'm going to rest in His holy, perfect, and loving arms and His powerful and mighty arms who are able to carry me through. 
For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So embrace your God and walk through the doors that he opens. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, let's pray. to you here at this table. In bread and wine, we partake of our Lord and are united to his body. In him, we have true and lasting peace. All the disturbance and frustration is dealt with. All justice and righteousness and all the law is fulfilled. It is already done and yet not complete. But it is sure and it is real and it belongs to you. Eat and drink in peace, for God will keep you in safety. This table is for baptized believers who believe in Christ as their Lord. When you eat and drink with, this, with us, you acknowledge that you are a sinner without hope, except in the sovereign mercy of God, that you trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Christ's body, broken for us. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C H R I S T. K-I-R-K-M-I dot com. Again, thank you and blessings.